down. The thanks and the praise. Good morning. You are in uh, Jesus from Middle Eastern Eyes. So uh, if you're looking for another class that's not here, I don't know where they are. <laughs> uh, I'm Rebecca Benny. I'm one of the three teachers. I'm co-teaching with my dad, Jeff, and Stephen uh, Ramsey. Uh, no relation. So, uh, so far in the class, we've looked at sort of a historical, theological, social background of the first century church and first century Judea. Um, then we looked at the language structure of how Judaic uh, language is often structured differently than Western civilization and the fact that they speak in parallelisms and in lines rather than just a straight through, like in English, um, Western civilization. Week three, we sort of talked about the birth of Jesus and how they didn't have stables like we have stables, things like that. Uh, and then last week, Stephen spoke about Jesus and his childhood and his teachings um, up until his public ministry. So this is the first week where we're really gonna talk about Jesus in his public ministry, those three years that he taught um, at the end of his life leading up to his crucifixion. So this week in particular, we're gonna be talking about the woman at the well. Uh, as with every class, we're starting with the Shema. So if you all stand up and say this along with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. So to start off today, I'm going to briefly talk about women in Hebrew society. This is obviously a much larger issue than we can talk about in one class period, in one 14-week class. Um, so this is the tippy-tip top of the iceberg. Uh, and the Old Testament was really a high point for a women place in uh, Jewish society. We have really heroic figures such as Ruth and Esther, uh, Deborah the prophetess, the only female judge, and Jael, uh, who is in Judges as well. And all of this just really, um, these women show a very high respect for women. They are self-sufficient. They have a lot of respect in society. And then in the intertestamental period, the years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a deterioration that takes place. And the best example of this is from one of the apocryphal books, which is Ben Sirach, the book of Sirach. If anyone is, has a Catholic background, uh, Ecclesiasticus is another name of this book. Uh, and he says a lot of just really terrible things about women that represent how women were seen as a whole. And the, uh, the, the biggest kicker for me was a man's spite is preferable to a woman's kindness, which is just a really awful thing to say. I mean, he, he goes on in his book, um, and this is a book that some consider to be um, the inspired word of God uh, that takes place, that was written around the second century BC. Uh, basically, a man should not trust his wife, should not confide in his wife, should not give property to his wife. Um, the wife should not be, have a, an income of her own. Um, 
as moths fly from a woman's clothing, so spite comes from a woman. Um, and was he married? <laughs> we can only guess. <laughs> was it a happy marriage? Probably not. Um, so all that to say, women become entirely defined by their relationship to men. So they're a daughter, they are a wife, they are a mother. That is how they are defined. Uh, they have very limited financial means. So we don't see a Ruth that is making money for herself anymore. And the I, entire concept of this is because Eve and woman brought shame into the world. So women are inferior to men because of that shame. So that is where we are at the time of Jesus. So the question really becomes for us as Christians and for this class, well, did Jesus reaffirm that viewpoint or did he do something to shake that up? Yes. Did the Roman occupation in any way modify some of that? Uh, that's a good question. I, I definitely from a from the standpoint of the Hebrew people, no. Um, but I, my co-teachers have a... I the Roman women had a significantly different place in society than the Hebrews. Uh, it was still inferior to men at the same social status, but it was not, it was not the uh, Jewish world of Judea where women were essentially uh, chattel property. Uh, because, you know, when you, when you get through the later part of the New Testament, you'll start seeing Paul, like uh, Lydia, the seller of purple, who was self-sufficient uh, and wealthy. And you see a lot of these women show up, but they're, they're almost always in the Greco-Roman world. They're not Jews in, the, in Judea. And while some Western influence has changed this, a lot of this idea about the hierarchy of gender still exists today in Middle Eastern culture. So just a general broad overview of how Jesus um, interacted with women. And we'll be looking at this over the next few weeks. Uh, specifically today, we're talking about the woman and the well, but we'll also be talking about the Syrophoenician woman next week and one other, uh, but in the New Testament, there are basically six cameo appearances of women, and we can glean what Jesus thought about the differences between men and women and gender roles, gender equality, through how he interacted with these six women. So, but generally, we know that Jesus had women disciples during his public ministry. And this is not just to say that he had women listeners or women, women followers. A disciple is someone who, because we've looked at the importance of the rabbi, a disciple is someone who has devoted themselves to learning from this rabbi. So uh, these women disciples were just like the apostles, where they traveled around, not just like the apostles, but like the apostles in that they traveled around in the group and, um, Actually, the word disciple is only used in the singular once in the entire New Testament, and that is referring to Tabitha, uh, who is a woman disciple. So the only singular time disciples used in the whole New Testament 
it's in the feminine. Because uh, if anyone knows Spanish or any of the Romance languages, uh, words are have genders. They're either male or female. Um, that the female form is used for disciple. Uh, Mary, the sister of Martha, is a disciple. And uh, in Luke 8, Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, it talks about um, Jesus traveling around with the apostles, and they list, um, Luke lists a number of uh, female disciples, including Mary Magdalene. And finally, at the end, he says that the women were supporting uh, the apostles and the disciples from their own means. So, women, making it rain. Um, secondly, Jesus uses parables and images to show, uh, and he uses, the, he uses these uh, communications deliberately to make sure that the images are applicable to men and women. So there are a lot of pairings in Luke particularly. Um, the book that we are using, uh, the author uh, Ken Bailey says there are 27 pairings that he's found. Um, and some examples of this are a lot of times with parables, he'll pair them together. So the mending of the garment and the making of the wine. Mending of the garment was a female task. Making of the wine was a male task. Uh, mustard seed versus leavened dough, bread dough. Planting, a male task. Bread making is a female task. And finally, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Shepherding is a male task. The lost coin gets lost in the house and the woman is looking for it, looking for it in her house. House cleaning is a female uh, task. So you'll see a lot of times Jesus is purposely using um, images that can relate to men and women. So he knew and was hoping to communicate with men and women equally. I was going to add too on the lost coin, there was a parable, there was a rabbinic parable before Jesus' time about a man who loses a coin in his house and searches and searches and searches to find it. And Jesus takes the parable of the man and changes it to a woman, yeah. a lost coin. So not only that, he's inverting a cultural norm to make it even more applicable to women. So finally, in the same way that Jesus disregarded social hierarchy, he hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes, um, and he disregarded religious hierarchy. He didn't care if you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a high priest. Um, he likewise showed a disdain for gender hierarchy. Um, he wasn't interested in just talking to men who had the highest uh, rung of the gender hierarchy. He was uh, equally passionate and interested in communicating with women. So specifically now we're going to turn to the woman at the well. And this is in John and it is 42, um, 42 verses. So last week Stephen had everyone read together for the sake of time. I, I will just read it. Becca? Yes. The source, you referred to a source just a moment ago. I yes. Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, uh, Ken Bailey, Kenneth E. Bailey, and it's a really great book. We, for copyright reasons, are Jesus from Middle Eastern eyes in this class, <laughs> but uh, this is the book that we're using. I'm assuming it's for copyright reasons. I have a law background. <laughs> so here is uh, the woman at the well. 
Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one whom you, are, whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, nor in Jerusalem, yeah, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is, if this is, not, this is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have no food to eat that you do, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. 
already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the women, Woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So, from Western perspective, and that was chapter 4, by the way, verses 1 through 42 of John. From our Western eyes, what is this story about? I'm sure we've all heard this. Uh, this is a very, this is not one of those, like, weird stories that we just, like, never talk about. Like, since Sunday school, we've all heard about the woman at the well. There, there's no wrong answers here except the ones that are. Jesus was kind of calling her out on her sin of having multiple husbands. And I mean, I guess that's kind of what, traditionally, maybe what we've learned from the story is that, is that the woman was in the wrong and he was forgiving her. For yes, so <laughs> Jesus knows. Jesus knows your heart, even when things are in secret. God knows. But at the same time, God forgives. What else are sort of things that are often we talk about with this story? Uh, injustice. I know um, from my own personal uh, growing up in the church in the 60s, um, a preacher came to our church that really opened the word about how Samaritans were treated and created a parallelism with how African Americans were treated unjustly in the South. So this is not only Jesus talking to an inferior quote-unquote minority, but an inferior quote minority woman. And it sort of doubled down on that whole principle of justice. Yes, so not only does Jesus forgive, but Jesus is on his own volition speaking to someone who the Jews hate, Samaritans, and also a woman who was an inferior lowdown on that gender hierarchy. Yes. I'm not sure if this is my Western eyes, but are just other interests. But one of my one of the primary things I glean from this is an understanding of worship. There are other attending truths and insights, but for me, the primary thing that I see here, and there are personal reasons for this, I think, is his explanation about worship and what his what worship is to be. Yes, so are you talking about the reaping and the sowing or No, I'm talking about it's not on this mountain, it's not in that Oh, place. yes, yes. It's uh, that worship is to be understood in a different sense. Yeah. According to him, not in the Samaritan sense necessarily, not in the Jewish sense necessarily, but there is a he is implementing a new understanding of what worship is to be. Yes. I don't know if that's Western eyes or not. But. In the sense that you have eyes and they are Western, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily mean I am restricted 
In my understanding, the Western eye. Yes. So what I mean by Western eyes is how have we people growing up, growing up in a Western civilization seen this story? And it's a trick question in the sense that the message is still the same from Eastern eyes, but there are a lot of things that we miss that enhance the story. Um, and uh, when you look at, I am comparing this a lot to the Syrophoenician woman next week when, when we read it through Western eyes, we're like, what is this even about? But with this story, it's pretty easy to glean what the overall message is. But it, it is enhanced in a lot of way for people um, in first century Judea. I'm going to go over some of those now. So the very first observation is that Jesus is traveling through Samaria to get to Galilee. Uh, oftentimes, Jews would travel around Samaria because traveling through Samaria would defile you. And one of Jesus's teachings is that it's what's in your heart that makes you clean or unclean. It's not the outward actions. So first and foremost, Jesus is in Samaria to begin with, which is a big deal. Uh, the sixth hour, it's noontime. This would be important to people in the first century. They would pick up on that because that's not a time when you go to get water. Women were in charge of collecting water, but they would often do it early in the morning or late in the evening in order to avoid the heat. And they would go in groups for obvious reasons. One, it's a great time to talk. Two, um, you were in charge of bringing your own bucket, uh, your own cistern, things to hold the water. So it's heavy and that's hard work. And so you go in groups to share that labor. So this woman is by herself, which is weird, and she's going at noon in the heat of the day, which is weird. So what that tells the audience is this woman doesn't want to be seen. She is an outcast in a sense, and she's not going at a time when other people are normally going. So all of that is going to stick out to the first century audience. Uh, thirdly, Jesus asks to drink from a shared vessel. So as I just mentioned, there was no bucket at the well. So when we think of a well, we think of, you know, a little stone perimeter with the bucket on top and you crank, right? And the bucket goes down and the bucket comes up. Uh, wells in the Middle East in Judea were much bigger around. So um, I tried to find a good picture, but it was just a bunch of hokey clip art for the most part. Um, much bigger around, but still that stone wall around it. But then there would be a capstone and that capstone would mostly cover the entire top, but then there would be a small hole in the middle. And that capstone kept the water clean, it kept dust from getting in there, it kept kids from falling in. So the book said, or John says that Jesus was sitting on the well, and he was, he was on the well, sitting on that capstone. Uh, and you brought your own bucket, lowered it in, and pulled it back out. So Jesus asked to, for the woman to share that with him. And that would have been huge to people back then because in the same way that Samaritans and Jews paralleled blacks and whites during sort of the Jim Crow era, Samaritans were unclean. You don't share things with Samaritans. They are unclean. Uh, so Jews don't touch things that Samaritans have touched. They definitely don't eat or drink out of the same things that they have touched. So um, I think of the help 
you know, when the black help had to bring in their own tasting spoon because otherwise it would defile the food for the white um, employers. The same thing with Jews. The Samaritans touched it. It's unclean. I can't touch it. So Jesus is just straight up throwing that out the window saying, yeah, let's let me have a drink from what you are drinking from. And all of this is shaking this woman to her core um, in the sense that this is, you know, this is weird. He's Jewish and he's a man. So in the original, um, what, what she would have said to him is Samaria, which is the female form of the word. So when she says to him, I'm a Samaritan woman, what she's saying is, I'm a Samaritan woman, woman. <laughs> the, the Samaritan is already feminine. So the fact that she throws it on there a second time, I am a Samaritan woman, when she's talking to him is like really giving a one-two punch of like, you're, you're talking to me. I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman. And in Jewish culture, it wasn't just taboo to speak, uh, for a man to speak to a woman. It was uh, a social law that would make us incredibly uncomfortable. Um, if I was standing up here naked, it would be a similar sort of, you all would be very uncomfortable, I'm assuming. Uh, in that sort of sense where it was just like, uh-uh, you know, you just don't do that. You don't do it. Um, so that... The Samaritan woman understood that. And later when the disciples come back, we see that the disciples understand that as well. So the very first way that she tries to push him away is, I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman. Uh, Stephen last week spoke a lot about how Jesus didn't just know uh, the Torah, or the Tanakh, the Old Testament it was him, he lived it. So he can just throw out obscure references that we might miss right and left. And the first one is the idea that living water is something that is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter two. Uh, Jeremiah talks about broken cisterns and water that can't hold the water and that is the living water. So Jesus references uh, Jeremiah and then in a second attempt to rebuff um, Jesus, the Samaritan's like, okay, well, clearly the man-woman thing isn't working. Um, well, this is uh, Jacob's well from our ancestors that was given to us. Again, as a Jew, this is something that, sh or as a Samaritan, this is something she's expecting this Jewish man to really bristle against. Because the um, Samaritans and Jews had a large history of fighting over um, physical territory, but then what also comes along with that is genealogical, who they are descended from and who their ancestors are. So uh, it would, in the same sense, the fact that a Samaritan is thinking, is saying, oh, well, Jacob's our ancestor, so this is our well. Um, a Jew would normally be like, ah, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is you're wrong like jacob is our ancestor and when we got like when we had to go into captivity you came and uh, took our place and then when we got back you were just here and in addition to that um, during the roman occupation in the maccabeans they the samaritans and jews were destroying each other's temples so there's a lot of history 
um, it's not just um, racial differences. There's a lot of historical fighting as well. So there's a lot of bad blood between Samaritans and Jews. And that's something that she's bringing up in an attempt to rebuff Jesus. And when that doesn't work, she talks about the difference between uh, Mount Zion and Mount Gerizim. That's the idea that when she talks about the mountain in Jerusalem versus the mountain here. Um, and that's a big difference between Samaritans and Jews as well, is where do, is the divine presence of God? Where does the divine presence of God live? And that is the Shekinah is the um, Hebrew term for that. And Jews say, no, if you're going to worship God, it has to be at our temple in, on Mount Zion. And the Samaritans say, no, no, it's at our mountain here. So that's her third attempt. She talks about, oh, no, I'm a Samaritan woman. Oh, well, um, you know, Jacob gave us this well. We're, you know, historically uh, a rebuff. And then finally trying to get him on ideological ideas. And Jesus doesn't fall for any of that. He is here for a reason, and he doesn't make that reason immediately known, but he's not going to take the bait. Um, and uh, one should note that the law is that this woman is an adulteress. She's had five husbands. She's living with a man who's not her husband. Um, so according to the law, she should be stoned. And Jesus, as a rabbi, many people would expect him to uphold the law and say, you should be stoned. But that's not where he goes with this. He talks to her about how he is the living water and... Um, as we read. And then the disciples come back, which is always fun because the disciples are like us in a lot of ways. They just keep on making blunders. Uh, and so their teacher, who is supposed to be um, living the most holy life, the, who understands the law the most, who is living the law the most, who is closer to God than thee, um, is breaking this incredible social taboo, which is to their chorus, who they are as Jewish people, he is talking to a Samaritan woman by himself at a well. Yeah. Linguistically, was it kind of like a southern and northern accent also? Uh, I w it might even be, they're all speaking uh, Probably Aramaic. They're all speaking Aramaic. Um, but you know, there are accents. Yes, presumably, I would, one would assume. Uh, Location-wise, they're all very close together, but... Um, well, we know because later on, the Galileans had a very distinct accent. Right. Because when, Paul, when uh, Peter is in the temple during Jesus' crucifixion, just by speaking, people go, oh, you're a Galilean. So Galileans were seen as kind of the hicks uh, of the Jewish world because the really smart, intelligent guys live in Judea. So uh, it's kind of like the inversion of American English. Uh, the Northerners are the Hicks. That's right. <laughs> well, yeah. it just occurs to me that's another potential spot. Yeah. Uh, so the disciples come, and um, they're so shocked they don't say either, hey, Rabbi, do you want us to do something about this? Or... Uh, as a friend, what's happening? So the reason that in the book there are two questions listed 
is that one is something that a servant would also often ask a master. Sort of the what can I do for you question. And the second question that's listed is the as a friend. So the disciples don't even, can't even form the words to ask Jesus either as a servant or a friend. You're talking to this woman, what's happening? Um, and that's when Jesus talks to his disciples. The woman leaves, and now he's just talking to his disciples about sowing and reaping. And this is another example of how Jesus lives and breathes the word. So he is referencing Amos 9 and talks about how there's a four-month harvesting period, which you plant in the fall, you harvest in the spring um, in the Middle East. So um, that sowing, reaping would have been something that they were all uh, disciples were all been very familiar with. And um, at the very end, it talks about the Samaritan people as a whole, how they all accept Christ, and they accept Christ as a savior. And that particular language is incredibly interesting coming from Samaria. And the first reason is that Samaritans in their religion, which is very similar to Judaism, but different in a couple key ways, and one of those key differences in that if the Jews are all about looking for the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Samaritans are looking for the Taheb, which is a teacher, uh, in the same way that Moses was a teacher leader. That's who they were looking for instead of the Messiah. They were looking for the Taheb. So that's their idea of who they're looking for. So in Jewish culture, Jesus is convincing people that he's the Messiah. In Samaritan culture, he first has to convince people that they should be looking for a Messiah and then that it's him. And then in the very last sentence of uh, John 4, which is verse 42, is that they accepted him as savior. So the Samaritan people already had a savior, and that was Augustus. Um, during the Roman Civil War, this is Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Um, they're all fighting, and again, no one really wants Judea, but they've got that road, so they're all interested in order to get the food from Egypt up to the rest of the Roman Empire. So when Augustus wins, um, and he unites the entire Roman Empire, he uh, basically uh, is elevated to the place of demigod, and then once he dies, they actually give him the uh, title of savior. So he dies in 14 BC. Right now we're roughly 30 BC. So he has become savior. And what Herod the Great did uh, was he built a temple to Augustus in Samaria. And this is the uh, map that we've been using throughout the, Samaria is here. And Caesarea is here. So Samaria is up in the mountains. Caesarea is down at the beach. Uh, the temple was so large and grand in Samaria that Herod built for Augustus that you could see it from Caesarea. So it was a huge, big temple, all about how Augustus is savior. So the Samaritan people already had a savior. They had Augustus. So the fact that they used that word in John to describe Jesus is big. Um, it shows how incredibly um, high they place that emphasis on Jesus. So um, 
a couple concluding thoughts, and then we'll have a few minutes for questions, hopefully. Uh, this is from Ephron the Syrian. At the beginning of the conversation, he, Jesus, did not make himself known to her, but first she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet, and she adored the Christ. And some final thoughts. Um, Jesus in this entire story is acting as a servant, not a benefactor. The very first thing he does is he asks her for water. He asks her for something. Um, a lot of times the modern day church will mix beneficence and service. We'll say we're doing service, but we come in as we have this thing that we're giving to you. We come from a place of much. You come from a place of little. So let us uh, give this to you as our way of serving God. But that's not service. That's beneficence. So Jesus comes from a place where he says, I need something from you too. Um, we're all, we all, and then there's that trust built, there's humility there, and um, the woman is, is open, and whoever you are serving is open to you. Um, second is, John includes this in his, in his gospel. Um, Jesus does three years of work, and yet we only have four gospels, with a couple of stories about what Jesus did. So there was an editorial process where the gospel writers said, what am I including in this story? And this was one of the stories that they included. And I think it, that's an important thing to remember. Why did the writers want us to know this about Jesus? Um, and I think it is important because of how Jesus treats this woman who is an other. She is a woman, she's Samaritan, she's an adulteress, she's an outcast in her society. And yet he uses her to bring an entire town of people to him. And then finally, the story is really important for our Christian understanding. Um, again, Jesus is Savior. Uh, we don't need the temple anymore. That's how we see worship. Uh, the temple has, been, um, has become obsolete because we have Jesus. Um, as the people of God, uh, we are included in this as non-Jews. Uh, the Samaritan woman uh, is not Jewish, and yet she gets to become part of the kingdom of God. And then finally, freedom from the old law. She should have been stoned. That was what uh, her actions led to, and instead, Jesus forgave and used her as a great source of good. So, um, we're supposed to be done, but if you have any questions, I can take them quickly. Yeah.
different kinds of English movies, uh, like Shakespeare and stuff like that. And that, of course, led me toward Gaston. Uh, I don't know if that helps you or not, but I've been through that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's important to remember that there's a place for everyone in, in, uh, in Jesus' world. And so I think if we're striving to be like Jesus, yeah. As you pointed out, John could have written a lot more than he did. His account is a brief mm-hmm. in choosing of what he wrote. He was not present the first part of the conversation, could it be that he picked and chose some points that he wanted to make from the first conversation with the woman to make points that he wanted to make? And for that matter, is that true of all the biblical records? Yeah, I think that sort of gets into the idea of uh, the divine inspiration of scripture in a way where, and that's something that uh, in week one, we sort of talked about how they were speaking Aramaic, but what we have are Greek texts. And so there's a translation there that has to be made in addition to, um, well, it was, yeah. So it's, and then we're, we obviously are not reading Greek texts now, we're reading English. So um, I think that there's a, at some point there's a, a faith uh, leap of faith that has to be made about what God wants us to get from these it's scriptures. We don't know more about her story as opposed to this story. Yeah. Yeah. Given uh, the tensions between the Jews and Samaritans, was there the potential for an actual fight, if you will, between the Samaritan men and the disciples when they came out? Was it physically dangerous for a Jew to travel through Samaria? Uh, yeah, and I think that's part of why the Good Samaritan is such a, an interesting story, right? Where the, those, phys- those tensions run high in every sense. And um, Jesus' actions could have led to, um, could have led to physical harm, um, given the tension between um, Samaritans and Jews, definitely. Yeah. Okay, I'm reading from the uh, New Oxford Annotated Bible, and I don't know the basis for this translation. I don't have a Greek text in front of me, but it says in four four of John that he had to go through Samaria. And uh, I, again, I don't know the background to that translation, and there are different ways to interpret that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any insight into that? In this saying. But he had to go, he left Judea, started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. And I'm like you, I've been accustomed to the understanding that they would oftentimes take a lengthy journey around Mm -hmm. over to the Decapolis and maybe back over into Galilee so that they would not have to go through Samaria. But this translation, which is... um, uh, a highly scholarly mm-hmm. translation says he had to go through Samaria. Maybe to prove a point he had to go through Samaria. I don't know. But that's at least the translation that they offered here. 
Okay. Um, I'm getting this from Ken Bailey, so yeah. uh, I'm trusting him. Interesting thing to consider that. Yeah. That translation uh, says he had to go through Samaria for what reason? I'm not sure, but it's an interesting way to translate that. Yeah, agreed. Uh, thank you, Sam. Where oh. I come from, people stand during the national anthem. <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> um, go Titans, and uh, I'll see you all next week. <laughs>